Uh, right, let's uh, move on into our time of study this morning. Uh, last week we started a new book, uh, a new adventure, a new journey uh, through First John, and we spent uh, a lot of the time last week in an introduction, just looking at the background of John himself, this apostle that had spent this incredible three years or so walking with Jesus from the time he'd been called as a, a young, probably a teenage uh, young fisherman working in his dad's business, and then leaves all of that behind to follow after Jesus. Clearly a man of ambition and drive, and yet we find that later he becomes known as the, the apostle of love. Um, the one whom Jesus loves specifically is referred to. Uh, we just see this incredible transformation, this heart, this gentleness, uh, this this man. And John, seemingly the only one of the apostles who wasn't martyred, wasn't put to death for what they believed. Um, one commentator put it that he was um, confined to the martyrdom of a long life. Um, it's sometimes been said that, you know, to die for Jesus is one thing, but to live for Jesus is a whole nother challenge. And, you know, John certainly lived for Jesus. And the writings that he gives us, um, these, particularly these, these letters, uh, first John, uh, that we're looking at at the moment, we just see the heart of this man who wants his children in the faith to grow to maturity. And that's very much the theme of the session that we're going to be looking at this morning. So, uh, with your Bibles, turn with me to second John. In fact, what we're going to do, uh, just so we get a kind of a running start of this, we're going to start by going into first John. Just read the chapter through, um, just so we get the context of all of these things first and then we'll go through uh, from there so the beginning of first uh, john chapter one verse one that which was from the beginning which we have heard which we have seen with our eyes which we have looked upon and our hands have handled of the word of life for the life was manifested and we have seen it and bear witness and show unto you that eternal life which was with the father and was manifested unto us that which we have seen and heard declare we unto you that you also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things write we unto you, that your joy may be full. We said last time that John gives us a number of reasons for writing. Uh, this was one of the ones that we see that John wants us to be full of joy, not happiness, not something that's um, subject to circumstances and our emotions and everything else but to be full of joy uh, that can only come from the abiding relationship we have with God. He says, This then is the message which we have heard of him and declare unto you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. To me, that's the, the pivotal verse of the first chapter, that we have this fellowship with the Father, and because we have that fellowship with him, we have the fellowship with one another also. Uh, if we want to have fellowship with one another, and I'm not just talking about being acquainted with each other or being able to meet together or uh, talk to each other, but a true deep fellowship, uh, a love, a care, a compassion, um, that we are able, as Galatians 6 tells us, to bear each other's burdens. That kind of relationship doesn't come um, from natural inclinations. It comes from the indwelling spirit of the living God. And it only comes from abiding with God. If we have this relationship with God, everything else will come from that. It's what Jesus said, uh, Matthew records for us, that we should seek first the kingdom of God. It's very simple. Then everything else will sort itself out. That's the one abiding relationship that we must focus on. 
John tells us that if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. And of course, that's what we went through and looked at in some detail last time. So we're going to jump into chapter two now and spend a little bit of time just looking at what John says here. Now, he begins the chapter with this uh, lovely expression, um, speaking of his his children, effectively, um, the ones who are newly born, effectively is the word that's used in the Greek. He says, my little children, these things write I unto you. So this is now the second reason, in a sense, that he gives us for writing this letter that we have. And uh, we mentioned last time that it's not like the other epistles, typically, that we find in the New Testament that were written from Paul to someone or from James to someone. This is actually a general epistle to the church. Um, so this is for each one of us. And he writes, my little children, these things I write unto you. And notice what he says, that you sin not. Uh, the, the word actually is a better translated or could be translated as my darlings. Now that you sin not, uh, it's uh, probably to miss the mark. Uh, so not to share in the prize. That's the whole idea behind sin. In a sense, sin is, uh, I'm sure you're familiar, is kind of an old archery term, the English word that we have translated. Uh, and the idea is you miss the target. You miss what you're aiming for. And of course, what we're aiming for is God's righteous standard. But we have all and all fallen short of the glory of God. We've missed that standard. Um, but then John writes now that we should sin not going forward as believers with this new life that we've been given in Christ. But he says that, you know, of course, we in the previous chapter, we just read it that we do sin. Um, and we'll, we'll look at this as we go forward. Um, but again, it's more than just missing the mark. It's missing out on the rewards that are to come. So sin not only indicates a lack of trust in God, and that's really the root of, of almost all sin. It's lack uh, of a lack of trust in his promises. It's an act of defiance. Of course, it is against him. But it also disqualifies us from future rewards. And we need to have that in mind when we are tempted, uh, when we are to be drawn away by uh, the world, the flesh, the devil, that it's not just a case of lacking of trusting God. It's not just uh, an act of defiance. It's also a losing out on the rewards that we could have otherwise uh, obtained in our Christian walk, that when we get to heaven, we will become beneficiaries of those things. So we need to understand this has a much bigger impact than just those little things that we think may not uh, be seen by other people. Uh, if I may just go off on a very quick tangent, I think it's interesting when we look at the account of Joseph in the Old Testament. Joseph, as you know, was uh, tempted very much by Potiphar's wife. Potiphar's wife, um, contrary to um, popular opinion, uh, or I think possibly the mindset we have, is uh, we often see her as some kind of very old uh, lady, a kind of, I guess, a, a Joan Collins type of kind of character. And you think, you know, why would a young man be interested in someone like that? Well, in Egypt, the people didn't live that long. The age span was typically about 40 years at that time, which is one of the reasons Pharaoh is so amazed when he gets to meet Jacob uh, at uh, his, his long age at 130 years old. But so Joseph is tempted effectively, he's kind of his um, late teens, early 20s at this point, by this beautiful young Egyptian woman. Um, so it, it really was a genuine temptation. But what does Joseph do? He flees. He recognizes the danger. Now, 
on one hand, you think, but then, you know, had Joseph have given in to the lust of the flesh, nobody would have known. Mrs. Potiphar certainly wasn't going to tell anybody about it because she's clearly would have. The, the implication is that when uh, Potiphar finds out, he was very aware that she was the cause of the problem, but obviously couldn't lose face. So Joseph is the one that gets put in prison. Uh, it, it seems she had some form in that regard. So, um, but the fact that Joseph realized that there were bigger implications than just the, what he may have seen or perceived at that moment because nobody would have known nobody was seen she wouldn't have told anybody the servants wouldn't have found out Potiphar wouldn't have known he could have just carried on and but that's not the, the, the point because by being obedient to God by recognizing right recognizing God's hand on his life the chain of events then follows that Joseph is put in prison. But had he not been put in prison, he wouldn't have been able to speak to the butler and the baker. And had that not have happened, he wouldn't have been able to speak to Pharaoh and interpret his dream. And had that not have happened, the family eventually wouldn't have been able to move down to Egypt. So potentially they could have died out in the famine that was in Canaan. And of course, you see the whole chain of events leading to this line that God had established through Abraham that was going to bring the Messiah into the world. That one pivotal moment in Joseph's life has a big, big impact on the whole of the biblical plan that follows. So once again, you realize that sin does have a much bigger impact than we tend to perceive just in that moment. So I just share those things with you. But what we're told here is that if any man sin, now this is the interesting thing because John is saying, I'm writing to you so that you sin not. I don't want you to sin. You, there's no need for you as a believer to stumble and fall into sin. There is no reason for you anymore to miss the mark because you're not now doing this on your own. Um, I guess the analogy would be a little like uh, if you imagine a child with a with a bow with an arrow trying to hit a, a target, an archery target, um, and on their own they might not be strong enough to hold the bow, or they might be they're missing the target. But then it's like having their dad come and lean over their shoulder and take their hands, put their hands on the bow with them, and help them steady so they hit the mark. Well, we've been given the Holy Spirit to do just that, to be with us, to help us. We've been given a supernatural ability and strength that we never had before. And so John writes that we should be able to live our lives that we sin not. John will deal with this more as we go through this letter. But then he says, but if any man sin, so he's acknowledging what he said in the previous chapter, you know, the reality is we will still stumble from time to time. We will fall, we will sin. But he says, if that happens, we have an advocate with the father. And he says, Jesus Christ, the righteous. You know, it's not a foregone conclusion that we're going to sin, but provision has been made nonetheless. And the word that we have here for advocate is the word in the Greek parakletos. It's exactly the same word that is used of the Holy Spirit. Uh, back in uh, John's gospel. Uh, and typically the, the understanding of what parakletos means is one who pleads another's cause before a judge. It's a pleader or a counsel for defense, a legal assistant, an advocate. That is uh, the, the concept that, that is being portrayed in this word here. So we have a legal defense before God, who is the judge of all things. As I said, the word is used of, as uh, in translation as comfort in regard to the Holy Spirit in John uh, 14, verse 16 and 26. But we need to be aware of the reality of the, the spiritual battle, in a sense, that we're all in. We, of course, have the judge of all the earth. Genesis 18, verse 25, Abraham speaks of God being the judge of all the earth. Uh, it says, shall he not do right? Um, on the, the prosecution, though, we have Satan. 
Revelation 12 verse 10 tells us that Satan is the accuser of the brethren. But then we have our defense. And that's what we've just read in 1 John 2 verse 1, that Jesus Christ is our advocate. Now, you paint the picture that you're there in the courtroom of eternity, effectively, and Satan is bringing all his accusations. He's accusing us of lying, uh, of being thieves, of committing adultery. Uh, Certainly even just by looking, Jesus said, if you look lustfully, then you commit adultery, of being guilty of murder. Now, we may say, but I've never murdered anybody. But Jesus said, if we have hatred in our heart, then that's just the same as murder. See, God's standard is so much higher than ours, uh, and the attitude of the heart is really the issue Uh, and then we look at the other things as well that we've been disobedient to our parents Uh, we've broken all of the the commandments that God has given us you know we've not made God the one and only God in our life we've allowed idols into our lives and so as we stand in this kind of hypothetical imaginary courtroom as it were but I mean in the spiritual realm this is a reality that Satan accuses us of all these things And he's right to do so because we are guilty of committing all those crimes. And so Satan's argument is, look, they've broken all these laws, your laws, God, and therefore they deserve to be condemned to hell. And we stand there. But then on the other side of the courtroom, we have our defense attorney, our our legal representation. And it's none other than the son of God himself. And Jesus then steps forward. And Jesus, with his nail pierced hand, says this one has been paid for all that the all the sin that's been brought to to bear so far everything that's been mentioned has been paid for because on a cross some for us now two thousand years ago jesus died to pay for everything we have ever said and everything we've done everything we've ever thought it's all been wiped clean because of his blood and so satan of course is accusing us but as god the judge of the whole earth looks at this legal document effectively this this list of um things that are against us well so we find that every page is wiped clean there is no sin recorded because it's all been removed because of the blood of jesus jesus has never lost a case and this is why satan gets so riled uh, by these things because we have been given this pardon we're allowed to walk out of that courtroom completely free because jesus was the one that took the penalty for us and in verse two it goes on and says we're told that he is a propitiation for our sins I, I love this this word it's one of those great kind of old english words um but the idea in the uh in the greek is, is payment in full that's exactly what Jesus is. That it's not a, a half measure. It's not just up until today and then tomorrow. We've, you know, no, this is everything. Everything we've ever thought, done, said, everything has been paid for by the blood of Jesus. He is the propitiation for our sins. Now, in a Roman prison, typically, um, the prisoner would have nailed to the prison door a list of their crimes so that people would know what they were in for and so on. Once they'd served their sentence, then that document will be stamped with one word. That word was tetelestai, and it's the word paid in full. It's Jesus' last word spoken in John 19, verse 30. As Jesus is on the cross, he cries out, tetelestai. We have it translated, it is finished. And it was absolutely finished. The whole work of redemption in the sense of, of forgiving us for our sin was completed because that exchange where our sin He who knew no sin became sin for us. Our sin was placed upon Jesus Christ. So he is the payment in full for our sins. But then we're told something that's really interesting. It says, and not for ours only, but also for the sins 
of the whole world. It's a, it's a simple statement, but it's in accord with everything else we read in Scripture that it wasn't just for our sins that Jesus died. Jesus bled and died on the cross and paid for the sins of the entire world. It's a staggering thought. Now, people sometimes ask the question, well, why would a God of love send someone to hell? Well, if somebody does ask you that question, and it's a very popular one against uh, amongst atheists and people that don't believe, just respond quite simply that God will not send anyone to hell. See, hell was not made for man. Matthew twenty five forty one tells us that God has made a way for all of us to escape hell. And the ones who end up in hell will do so because they rejected the payment that had been made on their behalf to atone and forgive their sin. But you see, if you reject Christ, there remains no other way. There is no other sacrifice for sins, we read in Hebrews. There is no other option. If you don't face God with Jesus as your saviour, as your advocate, then you face God with just the accuser of the brethren bringing this list of crimes that you've committed against God, the offences you've committed... And of course, you can't answer. Now, the people in the world will try and argue that they've done lots of good works and good deeds and they think they're better than someone else. But, you know, they're judging by their own standard. Now, we're not judged by our standards. We're judged by God's standard. And of course, God has revealed his standard in his word. Of course, the, the law very much paints the, the clear picture of the holiness of God, the standard that God has set. But, you know, try it. If you if you, you speak to a non-believer and they have a question with this, just get them to write down their own standard, what they think the rules should be for life. What you'll find very quickly is that people can't even keep their own standard. Whatever rules people think that we should all abide by and keep to, people won't put in there that we shouldn't lie and we shouldn't steal and those kind of things. But very quickly, people do those things. And you find that we can't even meet our own standard, let alone God's standard. And so this statement we have, that he is the propitiation, the payment in full for our sins, but also for the whole world. The price has been paid. It is there. And this is the incredible thing and the 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 heart-wrenching thing, that there are so many that will go into an eternity without God simply for not accepting the gift that was there to be taken. That is the, the the tragedy. And of course, that is the mission then that we have as believers to reach out to this lost world, to share the hope that we have, to share the gospel, the good news that their sin has been paid for. You know, it doesn't matter about your intellectual ability. It doesn't matter about your achievements in this world or whatever else. None of those things will count when you stand before God and you're judged according to your works. The only thing that will matter is that your works have been paid for by Jesus Christ, the, the, the sin and everything you've done and transgressing God's um, rules, his commandments, his laws, his statutes and so on. Now, I just want to go off on a very just quick tangent, but I just think at this point it's important to share this. And it's not a subject that uh, we've addressed uh, previously, to my knowledge, in the fellowship. But I think most people in the fellowship are on the same page regarding this. But um, most of you will be aware of the doctrine of Calvinism. Uh, and I bring it up at this point because this verse is so uh, applicable uh, in regards to this. Now, John Calvin, um, probably most of you are aware, was a Bible scholar, um, famed for his Institutes of the Christian Religion, this uh, great work that he wrote. Uh, he rose to prominence during the Reformation in Europe, so uh, back in the, the 16th century. 
and so on. Uh, and during that period of time, um, there's lots written historically about uh, John Calvin for those who want to dig a bit deeper and understand more about him. But um, after traveling around various places, um, uh, challenging the Catholic Church in regard to the things that were taught and so on, he became a very much a, a prominent figure in the Reformation. He ended up giving, being given the invitation to come and lead the church effectively in Geneva in Switzerland. Now, there are a number of things that were done there um, that uh, were questionable in the ways he did things. Um, but out of what he did, a lot of the things John Calvin said and did were okay. They were good. There was some biblical basis to it. But there were also some other things that were really concerning. And Calvinism is one of the things that's grown out of his teachings. Uh, it has been said today that uh, John Calvin wouldn't himself be a Calvinist. Um, so a lot of the ideas have actually been propagated by those who have kind of latched on to what he said and kind of tried to expound it and make a big thing of it. Um, but much of John Calvin's ideas and the teaching that's come out of these things were actually rooted in Greek humanism and Roman Catholicism. And so you need to understand the background uh, from a, a, um, a theological perspective of why Calvin came up with some of the ideas that he did. Now, Calvinism has typically this acronym TULIP, which some of you will no doubt be familiar with. Um, it stands for the T being total depravity. Now, I'm not going to go through all of these this morning. And uh, if you want to dig into it, then please do so. I'm going to recommend a resource in a moment for those who want to know more. Um, but then uh, unconditional election. Uh, I mean, just very briefly, but total depravity uh, has this idea that we were completely lost. And of course, building on some scriptural ideas, dead in trespasses and sins, but to the point that we couldn't even respond to God's grace. So we needed God to do a work in us before we could even respond. And then this unconditional election that God has chosen those. And in a sense, almost without our uh, agreement or uh, say so, God has chosen those to whom uh, he will give salvation. And then the idea of limited atonement. Now, this is the one that is applicable this morning limited atonement is the idea that jesus when he died when his blood was shed on the cross didn't die for the sins of the whole world but rather only died for those who are saved the argument is put forward that jesus's blood wouldn't be shed for those who would reject him and so that's the the statement that's effectively put forward and then irresistible grace the fact that god uh almost uh, press gangs us into walking with him for those who are uh, the ones he has elected and chosen through his foreknowledge and then finally uh, the perseverance of the saints and so on so uh, it's limited atonement i just want to just mention i'm just going to read to you a quote from uh, a book by dave hunt uh, this is the opening to the chapter on limited atonement he says this the l in tulip represents one more integral theory in calvin's scheme of salvation the doctrine which limits the atonement to the elect this concept follows directly from the limitation Calvin is placed upon God's love in spite of the fact uh, that it, like every other facet of his being, is infinite. One of their prominent apologists declares, The Bible teaches again and again that God does not love all people with the same love. And goes on and says, Loved by God is not applied to the world, but only to the saints. In Romans 1 7 is the verse that's quoted in regard to that. Uh, Calvin himself declared all are not created on equal terms, but some are preordained to eternal life, others to eternal damnation. The problem with this position is it makes God to be a barbaric God. 
because it means that God is condemning to hell those whom potentially he could have saved. Because if God is making the decisions and we are powerless to go against the decisions that God has made in regard to our eternity and our destiny, um, then it means that God is the one that is condemning people to hell. That is not what we read in scripture. That is not that, what we see of the love of God uh, given through scripture. And of course, not too long ago, we were going through First Peter. And we read there that God uh, doesn't want any to perish, but wants all to come to repentance. Of course, the understanding is that not everybody will, but God is very clear that he wants all to be saved, that God has made provision for all to be saved. And of course, if God is a just God, which of course we know he is, then it makes total sense that God wouldn't just place this offer just for a select few. Uh, for the electors sometimes referred. But this is an offer that has gone out to the whole world. And we should take great comfort in that, that God is a just and righteous and merciful and gracious God. Warren Wiersbe was once asked the question, uh, you know, what do you think of Calvinism? Um, and his response was very good. He said, I follow no man and no man should follow me. Uh, Warren Wiersbe, a good uh, Bible commentator. Um, which some of you may well have heard of. Uh, but it's a very simple statement. You know, we, we don't want to follow any individual. Uh, and, you know, the only one we want to follow is Jesus Christ and his word. That's the standard. That's the foundation. Um, I would recommend if anybody wants to dig into this a bit further, the book by Dave Hunt, What Love Is This? Uh, I just want to read this quote to you. That's from page 123 of the book. It says, uh, by now it should be clear that Calvinism is founded upon the premise that God does not love everyone is not merciful to all, does not want all to be saved, but in fact is pleased to damn billions whom by sovereign regeneration he could have saved had he so desired. If that is the God of the Bible, Calvinism is true. If that is not the God of the Bible, who is love, 1 John 4 verse 8, Calvinism is false. The central issue is God's love and character in relation to mankind as presented in scripture. The very title of this book, What Love Is This?, asks of Calvinism a question to which it has no answer. I'll just share that with you because you may stumble across people who have this position, who uh, would refer to themselves as Calvinists. Um, and often people who were claimed to be a Calvinist, that may more be a hereditary thing, that they came from a family there where people were saw themselves as Calvinists. A lot of Reformed churches, um, United Reformed churches, and those that came out of the, the Reformation uh, will often have this leaning. A lot of the churches that um, came out of the Scotland because of the, the links between Scotland and Geneva and Calvinism and so on. John Knox and others uh, all were in this kind of camp together. It doesn't mean they're not saved, these people. I'm not trying to um, uh, say that we should not have fellowship with these people, but we need to be cautious of the doctrines that go along here. Um, so I just share this with you. It's not something we've talked about before, um, and I don't want to sidetrack the study, but because we're looking at this verse, which clearly says that Jesus died and is the payment in full for our sins, and not for us only, but for the sins of the whole world, it's just a very clear rebuttal to the ideas that are propagated by Calvinists to this day. So we go on verse three and hereby we do know that we know him. Okay. So this is a very quite, quite simple statement. If we keep his commandments. Okay. Now all the world may not receive his love. That, that's true. We understand that the world may, there are individuals in the world there are many in the world who will reject this offer of salvation through Jesus Christ. But for those who do, this is how we know that we know him. So the question, how do we then know 
that we really are saved? How do we know that we have this relationship with him? Well, it's a very simple answer. It's because we keep his commandments. Now, there are many commandments for believers in the New Testament. And we could go through sight, all sorts of them. You know, it's not the fact that in the Old Testament there was the law and the New Testament is grace and there's no rules. That's not strictly true. We are under grace. We have this liberty, but there are clearly commandments. There are expectations of believers and how we should live and what we should do and so on. But we're told actually in 1 John 5, we haven't got there yet, but um, eventually, Lord willing, we'll get to chapter 5 of this incredible book. Uh, we're told that his commandments are not grievous. They're not things that wear us down or become a, a burden for us. Uh, it's simply out of this love relationship we have for him, we should want to keep his commandments. It's not a case of, well, does it mean I can't do this? It's more a case of, I don't want to do that anymore because I recognize that I have something better in Jesus Christ and my relationship with God through Jesus is better than the things the world can offer me. The world, of course, tempts us. Temptation only works because sin is pleasurable. That we're tempted to do saying things that, that please the flesh. Um, you know, that's the whole idea. Otherwise, temptation wouldn't work. But Moses, we find, uh, rejected the, the pleasures of sin for a season. Uh, when he was in Egypt, he rejected the opportunity he had to live that luxurious lifestyle as um, the effectively son of Pharaoh, um, potentially being uh, set up to be the next Pharaoh. All those things that Moses had potentially awaiting him, he rejected that. The pleasures of sin for a season because he, he recognized that serving and walking with God was far more important and provided far more blessing. The other thing we need to keep in mind, of course, is that this time on earth is a very short part of eternity. You know, we tend to think of this life now being very long and, you know, we can't really visualize or imagine eternity. But eternity is a long, long time, if I may say that. Uh, you know, and we, we need to keep our minds on the fact that this is very, very short now. Um, we're not being asked to um, resist beyond that which we can bear. Uh, with temptation but if we have a love for God actually resisting temptation like Joseph found isn't so much of a problem there is of course this uh, uh, deduction from this verse that if we don't keep his commandments we have to ask that question do we really know him God has given us plenty of commandments as we mentioned but if we don't keep them do we really know him? Do we have a relationship with him? Can we say that we have a relationship with God if we're not willing to follow the things that he says? Verse 4 says, He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, John makes it very clear, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Now, this word keepeth, and we saw previously in this verse as well, it means to attend to carefully, to take care of, to guard. Uh, to observe is literally to show respect to and that's the idea so what is your attitude to god's commandments that's really the key here you know as a believer your attitude to god's commandments should be one of utmost respect that we should recognize that god is god that god has the right to set the rules the commandments he's given are not grievous but they're actually for our benefit for our learning for those with children, you'll know that you set rules for your children and you don't set those rules because you don't want them to enjoy life. You don't want them to be blessed. You set those rules because you want to pr protect them. You want to put a set of boundaries around them that will keep them safe. And God has done the same for us with the commandments that he's given us. Of course, you would have to question your salvation if your attitude 
to God's commandments is one of indifference. You know, if you are indifferent to the things of God, then there has to be questions raised about your relationship to him in the first place. Verse five carries on and says, but whoso keepeth his word, that's the same word that we saw a moment ago, has respect to his word uh, and so on. Uh, in him verily is the love of God perfected. It's made perfect. Hereby we know that we are in him. Okay, it's a very simple statement. Now, the word here, uh, translated word, is logos in the Greek. It's the same title that John, back in his gospel, in John chapter 1, gives of Jesus. In the beginning was the logos, the word, and the logos was with God. This is the, the, the expression, and again, whoso keepeth his word. I mean, we could paraphrase this. Whoso has respect to and guards his relationship with Jesus. Now, that's the challenge this morning for each of us. Do you protect and guard your relationship with Jesus? Because we've already seen in the first chapter that John makes it clear that actually our relationship with Jesus, our relationship with God the Father, will impact and affect our relationship with each other. If we don't have the right relationship to God, we can't have the right, right relationship to our brothers and sisters. We certainly can't have the right relationship to our spouses or the ones we love. We can't have the right relationship to our children, truly, because all of these things, love only comes from God. And then the love that's shed abroad in our hearts is that which goes out in our expressions to other people. The Living Bible translates uh, or paraphrases uh, this in such a way. But those who do what Christ tells them to will learn to love God more and more. That is the way to know whether or not you are a Christian. I love that. It's very simple. But it's the idea that the love of God is perfected. It's learning to love God more and more and it comes from this relationship ultimately we have with the word whoso keepeth his word not just the things that god has said is the person of the word jesus christ as well as the things that he said in his written word uh, david guzig made these comments he said uh the a perfected the idea is mature love for god will show itself in obedience and the presence of this obedience and love gives us assurance that we are in Jesus. When one becomes a Christian, there is a change in his relationship with sin. Sin is not eliminated in the believer until he comes to glory, but his relationship to sin is changed when he truly becomes a Christian. A Christian no longer loves sin as he once did. A Christian no longer brags about his sin as he once did. A Christian no longer plans to sin as he once did. A Christian no longer fondly remembers his sin as he once did. A Christian never fully enjoys his sin as he once did. And a Christian no longer is comfortable in habitual sin as he once was. Just think about this for a second. And this is a great little checklist for you in your own lives and your own walk with the Lord. You know, a Christian no longer loves sin. You know, do you still love sin? Do you find pleasure in sin? Because if you do, it questions the relationship you have with God. Do you brag about sin? I mean, we shouldn't, in a, in a sense, as Christians now, have any uh, pleasure, joy, uh, anything to brag about in the things that we once did. In fact, in the book of Romans, it tells us, you know, what fruit was there in those things? There is no fruit. We look back and we realize actually they didn't help us. 
They just hindered us. They caused us problems. They caused us, caused us pain. Certainly, we should no longer plan to sin. We shouldn't scheme. We shouldn't have any uh, plans in our heart or mind to sin when opportunity arises. And certainly, we shouldn't fondly remember it as if it was a, a long-lost friend. You know, that's certainly not the way it should be. If we have this relationship with God, we should recognize sin for the way that God recognizes it, as abhorrent, as something that is only... Uh, therefore our destruction for our uh, downfall satan wants us to sin because he wants to destroy us again we should never enjoy sin and i think most of us would uh, agree that when we do stumble when we do sin uh, once again we have that advocate with the father but we should never enjoy sin and i think probably most of us would acknowledge that actually sin is no longer pleasurable and for a, for a true believer you can't sin and enjoy it any longer god won't allow that the spirit of the living god is indwelling in you the things that you look at the things you see the things you do the things you say all of that has to pass through the holy spirit effectively uh, who's dwelling within us and a christian no longer is comfortable in habitual sin that's not to say there are not christians who struggle still with habitual sins uh, there are but we should never be comfortable in those things. You know, it should be something that we are very, very keen to allow God's grace to do that work in us to change. Uh, so it's just a good checklist uh, to use. Uh, Spurgeon said this, the Christian no longer loves sin. It is the object of his sternest horror. He no longer regards it as a mere trifle, plays with it or talks of it with unconcern. Sin is dejected in the Christian's heart, though it is not ejected. Sin may enter the heart and fight for dominion, but it cannot sit upon the throne. Great quote from Spurgeon. <clears throat> we carry on verse 6. He that saith he abides in him ought himself also so to walk even as he walked. Very simple statement. I want to just read to you a paraphrase again, the Living Bible from Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. It says, follow God's example. This is a memory verse. I remember when I was much younger, I learned this, this whole section. Uh, it was part of a, a youth challenge we were given at the time. Uh, follow God's example in everything you do, just as a much-loved child imitates his father. Be full of love for others, following the example of Christ who loved you and gave himself to God as a sacrifice to take away your sins. I love that. It's so simple. This is a statement that we should follow Christ's example and to walk as he walks. You know, the best way of following someone's example is to spend time with them. You know, those of you with children who have younger siblings, you'll notice those younger siblings will mimic the behavior of their older siblings. You know, you will notice also in a workplace, things you say get picked up by your colleagues. I remember distinctly many, many years ago in a job I was doing, uh, with non-believers, um, you know, my, my kind of little good greeting or my, my farewell at the end of the day, or I'll say, oh, goodbye, take care. And then very soon I noticed everyone in the office was saying the same thing. At the end of the day, they, were, they all just said, take care. And it's just something very simple. People pick up on those things. You yourself may have uh, influenced others by the things you say or by your attitudes. Just spending time with people. People pick up those characteristics and those habits. Of course, it can be a negative thing as well. And we need to be careful that we can also pick up things from our non-Christian colleagues or those that we spend time with or mix with. That's why we need to be very cautious and careful uh, about those kind of relationships and how much time we have with those people and what influences they have on us but we can have such a positive impact on others when we spend time with them well 
the obvious thing here is let's spend time with Christ. Because if we spend time with Christ, then we're going to start to mimic Christ in the way we live our lives. Those characteristics that we see in Jesus will start to overflow in our lives. So again, he that saith he abideth in him, and that's what we are to do, to abide, to have this vital relationship with him, ought himself so to walk even as he walks. And goes on verse 7, Brethren, I write no new commandment unto you, but an old commandment which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you have heard from the beginning. But then he says again, a new commandment I write unto you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is past and the true light now shines. We were in darkness, we're now in light. But there's a, there's a question here, because which one is it? Is it an old commandment? Is it a new commandment? He says, I write no new commandment. And then he says, I give you a new commandment. So it almost sounds as if we've got a kind of a contradiction in these two verses. But of course, it's not the case. The Greeks have two different words for new. Uh, they have neos, which is new in time, uh, so it's never occurred before. And then there's kainos, which is uh, new in quality. And it's the second one here that is the one that's being used. So really the commandment to love one another is, is not a new commandment. It had been given previously, but now the character of that commandment has changed. This is the, the royal law that we should love one another. It's part of that answer that Jesus gave. The, the most important commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. The whole law is summed up in those things. Uh, James speaks of this. Peter alludes to it and so on. But this new commandment that we have, that we should have this love overflowing us. And that kind of love comes, of course, from that relationship again that we have with God. Chuck Misler said this, Christ was the perfect example. He never showed hatred or malice. He hated sin and disobedience, but he never hated the people who committed such sins. He was patient with Peter's impulsiveness, Thomas's unbelief, and even Judas's treachery. Even at the cross, he prayed for those that crucified him. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Again, the quality of this relationship uh, that we have, the quality of the love that we now show is new. And so John says that it's not a new commandment. This was there before, but now you have the Holy Spirit indwelling you and you have the ability to fulfill this in a way you never could before. Verse nine, he that saith he's in the light and hated his brother is in darkness even until now. We've talked about this already the, the hatred that is the the natural worldly uh response to to things so often but it's not the way that a believer should be because we have the indwelling holy spirit he that loveth his brother abides in the light and there is no occasion of stumbling in him but he that hateth his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and knoweth not whether he goes because that darkness has blinded his eyes very self-explanatory John now gives us reasons, more reasons why he's writing these things. Uh, we're actually going to see four distinct groups, if I may term it that way, that John will make mention of. In effect, he's going to address four stages of Christian maturity. Now, the first one that we're going to see him talk about is little children. He's then going to speak of fathers, then young men, and then finally young children. Okay, so these are four distinct groups. Now, when we read the text, it's easy to miss the, the groups of four because it almost looks like you've got two groups of three. 
that's not the case. And I'll explain as we go through. The the reason sometimes we have a challenge here is because when we look at it in the the text, we have uh, verse uh, breaks in there. And of course, the verses weren't added until uh, about the 12th century. Um, so the verses were never in the original. And actually, if the verses were not there, sometimes a lot of the little challenges we have in understanding the flow of things uh, would be removed. But nevertheless, let's go through. Because the little children, this is speaking of born ones. Effectively, it's bands. It's a Scottish idea. Ones who are newly born, new converts. Then fathers is speaking of mature saints, those who have been believers for a long period of time that have grown to maturity uh, in their walk with the Lord. And then there's uh, the young men or the young adults, uh, typically, that it's referencing. And then finally, the young children. Now, this is translated. The reason this becomes a challenge for us is because in chapter, in verse 13, it's translated little children again, which is the same as it starts off in verse 12. But the Greek word uh, for these things is different. The idea is teenage uh, believers. Uh, I just want to read to you just some, some of the comments from David Guzik's commentary. Because these are quite instructive. Uh, he says, uh, just in regard to the little children, he says, we each begin the Christian life as little children. Uh, when we're in this state spiritually, is enough for us to know and be amazed at the forgiveness of our sins and all it took for God to forgive us righteously in Jesus Christ. So the first instruction we have is, I write unto you little children because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. You know, and we need that uh, that comfort that assurance as new believers but it's more than just that because you know forgiveness doesn't come by degrees even the youngest christian is completely forgiven and it's such a comfort that john writes this to say that you know as a new believer your sins are forgiven completely as we've already looked at this morning it's uh, forgiven you for his name's sake you see the, the reason for forgiveness are not found in us but in god the next verse, verse 13, goes on, I write unto you fathers because you've known him that is from the beginning. So just as surely as there are little children, there are also fathers. These are men and women of deep, long spiritual standing. They're the kind of walk with God that doesn't come overnight. Uh, these are like great oak trees, uh, David Guzik says, uh, that have grown big and strong through the years. And uh, just, you know, the idea that you've known him, this is what spiritual maturity has in its roots. Uh, it's not so much an intellectual knowledge, although that is part of it, but more the, the in-depth fellowship and relationship that we should have with Jesus. And of course, there's no substitute for years and years of experiential relationship with Jesus. Those who have been married for a long time know how that relationship matures and grows over time and strengthened over time by the time you spend together and experiences you share over the years. Well, it's the same with that relationship. The other thing here, of course, is interesting, uh, is the idea that mature saints are capable of reproduction. The idea of fathers, of course, fathers are able to reproduce. They've obviously had offspring for them to be fathers. Mature saints should be able to do the same. We should bring others into a relationship with Jesus Christ. We're producing spiritual offspring as well as in the sense of the physical. The next one, verse 13, the next group is, is the young men, as it's referred to. He says, I write unto you young men because you have overcome the wicked one. This idea, as much as there are little children and there are fathers, there's also young men. Uh, these are men and women who are no longer little children, but they're still not yet fathers. 
Um, but spiritually, they're like on the front line. Many of you uh, will remember, as some of you are right now in that position, that you're on the front line. You've got that zeal, that enthusiasm for the Lord. And it's interesting, the statement, because I run into young men, because you've overcome the wicked one, it implies that they are actively involved in spiritual warfare. One Bible commentator put it this way. The proper attribute of youth is to carry on the active parts of life. If soldiers is to be engaged in all active service. Quite like that. You know, again, they're engaged with the battle with the wicked one. You know, we don't typically send little children out to war. We don't send old men out to the front lines. The greatest effort and the greatest cost and the greatest strength are expected of the young men. We've seen that in this country during the First World War, during the Second World War. You know, it was the young men that went out, that fought for the nation. And, of course, the the women as well and the work they did, that, that age group particularly. But forget the numerical age. It's a spiritual content that really John is trying to allude to here. Uh, and there are many that are in that bracket. The, the older women need to encourage the younger women in this group the older men need to encourage the younger men that are in this group that are going out there they're engaging in the workplace on a daily basis they're having conversations challenging people about origins about the fact that we're not the product of evolution and time and chance that there is a god who created us you know challenging people about some of the doctrines and the ideas that are being put forward the things that we are supposed to accept uh, as norm uh, and so on. The, the zeal of spiritual youth, effectively, and not afraid of spiritual combat. Uh, David Guzik does make the comment, though. He said, for this reason, many have sought to stay in spiritual childhood as long as possible. And this is wrong. And it's like being a draft dodger or a vagrant. And we expect children not to fight in wars and to be supported by others, but we don't expect it of adults. These are young adults that we're speaking of spiritually here. Um, and as believers, we shouldn't stay in that place of being babies or, or, you know, little children. We should grow to this place where we're actively involved in the spiritual walk. Well, then the last one of these groups here is uh, these little children. He says, I wrote to you little children because you have known the father. Now, John uses different words for little children in verse 12 and verse 13, as I said. Uh, the first one in verse 12 is his technia. Uh, it's more the idea of a, a child's relationship who's dependent, whereas the word that's used here in verse 13 is a paedia, uh, which is where you kind of get pediatrics from, the same kind of root word. Uh, it has more of an emphasis on a child's immaturity and need for instruction. It's not to say that immature as such as being foolish but just a place of not yet having the maturity that they will later have and they need instruction they need to be taught and so this one i write to you little children because you have known the father that knowledge that we have through Jesus Christ. The idea here, uh, this is a, just reading from David Guzik's commentary, just says, uh, the repetition of the same idea shows that it should be emphasized. The relationship with Jesus uh, that people at this stage of spiritual growth have is both true and deep. Um, so uh, just some thoughts there on these verses that John gives us. I put those four together because the next section is different. Okay. And let me explain why. Because then John says, I have written unto you fathers because you have known him that is from the beginning. And I have written unto you young men because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the wicked one. Now, John only lists these two in this second bit. He doesn't list the babies in a sense that need parental supervision or the young children who are learning, who are growing 
growing, he only lists the, the young mature, or the, the young adults and the mature adults effectively spiritually. And notice this, the, this, the tense changes. I have written unto you. I've written unto you as opposed to I write to you. Okay. So there's a change in the idea. Now I, again, I find the Living Bible really helpful in terms of uh, the way uh, things are paraphrased. Uh, it is just a paraphrase again we, st- we stick with scripture but this is a, just a great way of, of understanding this context and this runs into the next verse too because it's and so i say to you fathers so after what we've said and so i say to you fathers who know the eternal god and to you young men who are strong with god's word in your hearts and have won your struggle against satan stop loving this evil world and all that it offers you for when you love these things you show that you do not really love god now what this does and i think it's very helpful it shows us that there's a really good link between the end of verse 14 and the beginning of verse 15 because as we go into 15 we get into a verse we probably know very well do not love the world or the things in the world if anyone loves the world the love of the father is not in him and goes on from there we'll come back to that in a second but often we take that as a standalone portion of scripture it's linked together. It's linked to the previous statement. So having given us this uh, degrees of spiritual maturity, and of course the challenge for each of us this morning is where are we? You know, are we still like babies that have just become believers? You know, that need that reassurance all the time. You know, or are we, you know, like young children that are in that place where we need instruction? And that's okay. That's, okay. That, that's good and that's proper. But you shouldn't stay in that place where you're continually needing instruction. There should come a point where you're able to step out and you move into that, that role of being a young adult and you have responsibility uh, and the, the freedom to do things and make decisions yourself and so on. And certainly spiritually, that's where we should be getting to to start with. And of course, then within any group of believers, we're going to have those that are more mature. And those that are more mature have that great responsibility of teaching, of looking after, of educating, of being examples to all those that are younger within the fellowship. Many times I've said how uh, important my gran was in my own walk with the Lord as an older, mature believer. um, She would be in that category of the fathers in this in this context. You know, she was such an influence in my life. And I encourage you, her grandparents, so into the lives of your grandchildren. You will do so much more than you can ever possibly know by sharing things of the Lord with them, by sharing your own experience of how good and gracious God is. So we need to continue that that continue, that relationship within a, a fellowship, within a body of believers. There's all these different elements within this fellowship. And we need to understand these things are there. We're not going to look at this this time. I just want to read to, to tail off the section. We'll study this the next time we come back to it. Um, but this goes on and just says, don't love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. And that's particularly written to the mature saints, those that are uh, uh being Christians longer and also to those young adults that are walking with the Lord now. It's a clear admonition to be careful, to watch out for those deceptions that are in the world. We'll uh, leave it there. We'll pick it up uh, next time. Let's just bow our hearts. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we can study these things together. Uh, Lord, just to impress upon our hearts the lessons that you want us to learn as individuals. Father, we thank you that John took the time to write these things. Lord, as a a spiritual father himself, Lord, just caring 
for us in our various stages of our growth. Well, Father, help us not to sin. As John says, he's read these things that we sin not. Help us, Lord, to have the same attitude towards sin that you do. But Lord, help us also to be an encouragement and a blessing to each other, to build each other up in this most holy faith that we get to share and enjoy and live in together. Father, we thank you for these things now. Keep us close to you as we walk with you through this week. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, let's invite the children to come back and share with us if they can. Now, there was a memory verse, which I think uh, most of you are going to be very familiar with already. It comes from Romans 8, verse 28, which uh, tells us that all things work together for good for those that love God and are called according to his purpose. It's such an important statement because so often we find ourselves in positions and situations where initially it doesn't seem like everything's going well. And that's exactly what the children have been learning about. So uh, let's get back. So uh, Isla, do you want to tell us what happened when David and his 600 men, they fled to Achish, this Philistine city, and the king, uh, Philistine king of Gath um, gave David a town. What was the town? It was. It was this place called Ziklag. And so then, Nell, how long did David stay there? It was one year and four months. And again, this is all the time when he was keeping away from Saul, trying to stay away. But then the Philistines go into battle uh, against um, the Israelites. And David, because he's now spending time with the Philistines, said, well, I'll come with you and I'll fight. But then some of the leaders of the Philistines say, oh, we don't really want David with us because he might turn against uh, us and fight along with Saul to try and become favorable uh, in Saul's eyes again. So what happened, uh, Daniel, if you answer that one, what did the Philistines uh, tell David to do? Okay. Wake up early. Wake up early and leave. Yeah, they sent him home. They they basically said the leaders of the Philistines said we don't want David here because he might be a problem to us. They sent him back home again. All right. Okay. So uh, James, then, what did David find when he got back? Yeah, that must have been really scary. You know, it would be it'd be scary if you came home one day and you found your house on fire, but the whole town was on fire and everything, including his wife and his children, they've all been taken. Um, and for the, not just for David, but for the whole uh, of the people that were with him for all his, his army. Um, and so uh, the next question, five, was when the people wanted to stone David, they were really cross and they wanted to kill David. They said, this is all your fault, David. What did David, how did he react, uh, either James or Caitlin? David strengthens himself in the Lord his God. Yeah, I think that is one of the best verses in the Bible. You know, when we're faced with a difficult situation, you know, and we don't know what to do, rather than panicking, David went to God. He strengthened himself in God or encouraged himself in the Lord. You know, he just went to God because he knew that God is in control. We don't always understand, but God is in control. And so let's see what then happened. So then David goes to God and says, Lord, what shall I do? Shall I go and chase after them 
and try and do or, or should, should I stay here? So, um, so, um, Mita, do you want to read the answer you have for the sixth question? What did David ask God and what was God's response? To pursue for you shall surely overtake them, and yeah, that's the right answer. Yeah, so God basically said to to uh, David and to his men, right, go after them, go get them, because I'm going to give you the victory. Uh, and so they did. Uh, and what happened when David caught up with the Amalekites, uh, Connie? What happened? Number seven. Um, the destroy the Amalekites. They destroyed the Amalekites from the first evening to the next evening and recovered all the Amalekites had taken away. Mm. Yep. And that's his two wives. It did. So they went, chased after them, they defeated the Amalekites, they got everything back. And they were able to go home. Um, so although it wasn't a nice situation for them, because David trusted God, God helped them and they got all the family back. They got everything that was stolen back. And so they're all okay. And God protected them. Now, while that was going on, there was still this battle that was going on with um, the Philistines and uh, Israel. And Saul and his sons, three sons, were fighting in the battle. Um, so, uh, anybody want to answer what happened to Saul and his sons? Anybody? Go on, just shout it out. He died. Yeah. So Saul got killed in the battle and his sons as well. And Jonathan died, which of course David was very sad about. Um, but as a result of that, David ends up moving back into Israel and becomes the next king. And I suspect that might be where we're going next. Um, so, okay, thank you, children. Really good. Great work. Lots of writing I can see on your sheets there. Uh, can we have a look at your drawings? See how beautifully you've coloured them in? Okay, there. Uh, oh, can see the fire. Yeah. Very good. That's excellent. Caitlin's, yours is very good. Yeah, and Nell and Isla's really, really colourful. Well done. Very good work, all of you. Great. Okay, everybody. Well, God bless. Pray that you have a really, really close walk with the Lord this week. Uh, keep him in the centre of all you do. And for those that can join on Tuesday uh, for prayer meeting, please do so. And uh, please pray for the study that we'll be doing with the Milton Keynes uh, Fellowship as well. Okay, God bless you. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you Harry. Thank you. Thank you. Bye bye. See Lani. Bye bye, Jim. Bye bye. 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 Bye bye.